This is a SMATS Group podcast. In this episode, Repatriation Tax Planning is recorded on October 2020 via a webinar presented by Steve Douglas. This webinar covered the essentials for anyone faced with the prospect of returning to live in Australia. What may be taxable upon return to Australia? What actions need to be taken prior to return? How to legally minimise Australian taxation? The merits of trusts, companies and superannuation. Please note this information does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation or needs. We recommend that you obtain financial, legal and taxation advice before making any decisions. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Australian Repatriation Tax Planning webinar, um, co-hosted by Aussie Expats Coming Home. So thank you for all joining us. My name is Julie Kelly. I'm the Sales and Marketing Manager at Smats Group. And I'd like to welcome our presenter this morning, Steve Douglas, the Executive Chairman for Smats Group. Um, For those of you that aren't aware, SMATS Group are the international leaders in providing Australian tax, finance and property services for Australian expats, intended migrants and foreign investors. So over to you, Steve. Okay. Yeah, welcome to everybody from the the Aussie Coming Home community. That's fantastic to have you here. And, um, you know, um, just a quick brief about myself. Obviously, we started SMATS in 1995 as a specialised tax advisory practice for expatriates and foreign investors, and we've been helping everybody yeah, since then. And uh, over the years, we've developed some really um, good modeling tools that help you understand. Um, and we have offices all around the world that help us as well. So, you know, um, virtually wherever you are, we're not too far away. Um, today, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Obviously, there's lots of um, issues and repatriation back to Australia has become obviously far more topical than ever before because of COVID. There's a lot of people that have lost their jobs now having to head home. Lots of confusing messages, lots of fear on top of already the fear of losing your job and all these sorts of things. So hopefully today we can certainly dispel some of the myths and problems that you might be experiencing and help you get some peace of mind and uh, confidence heading home. So I'll start my PowerPoint presentation now. So hopefully you can all see that on the screen. Um, if not, please you know, just tap type in your chat room. So hopefully you can all hear me and you can all see, see the screen on, on deck. Um, repatriation tax planning, it is a specialised field. There's not very many that, that uh, do it too, too well. Um, you know, we've been doing it for 25 years, so we hope to have got it going um, by now. And what I'm going to try and do is make sure you get a good understanding of everything. We'll get straight into it. And I suppose we have to do start with a disclaimer. You know, obviously, um, the advice we're going to give you is accurate, but it really needs to be taken on personal value. So please don't act on anything just by yourself. Feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to give you... Um, initial you know, uh, consultations and advice and get you going in the right direction, no problems. So you know, just make sure you always dig further and make sure that you act on the advice that's particular to your circumstances. So if you are heading home, and eventually we all do, around about 98% of all expatriates do head home. And statistically, you may or may not be aware that there is around about a million expatriates overseas usually. Um, you know, around about 80,000 people become expatriates from Australia every year and about 80,000 usually return. So in a normal year, we would be in equilibrium. There'd be more, as many new expatriates as returning. This year, I think we've had a surge of expatriates returning. Now, whether that's a permanent relocation or a temporary, that's going to be proven to be seen what happens over the next few years. Now, the average expatriate lifespan is usually leave for about two years and stay for seven. So that's the average. But when you eventually come back, there's some things you do have to consider. 
And the first one is obviously a change in your circumstances that, you know, depending where you've come from, going back to Australia, you're now going to be taxed on worldwide capital gains and worldwide income, wherever it is generated. If you're living in Australia again, you have to pay tax on wherever you earn money. You can't earn it in another country and not pay tax in Australia. Now, if you do have to pay tax in the country of source, you will usually get a credit for any tax payable. Now, a lot of expatriates live in tax-friendly zones like Singapore, Hong Kong, Middle East, where there's no tax implications if you have income overseas, and it's a very, very comfortable world. Australia is not that. Australia does tax you on worldwide, you know, so you have to bear that in mind. Importantly, though, if you are sending money home, so if you've been saving diligently in your period abroad, and you send any money home, that is not subject to tax whatsoever. So you don't have to be fearful that Australia will take some of your savings, some of your capital when you go back. So you can send money back to do what you will, if you wish. Now, you don't have to send money back. If you choose to leave it overseas, you can. And when you send it later, it won't be subject to tax. However, you need to bear in mind two things. One, if you leave that money overseas, any interest that it earns, you know, it will be subject to tax in Australia. And also now, if it's more than 250000 Australian dollars, it may also be subject to capital uh, to income tax on the foreign exchange gains if you make any. So you need to be mindful that leaving it overseas, there may be some tax implications on the earnings and also the potential exchange movement. If you've got pensions you know, overseas, you generally have six months in which to roll them into an Australian superannuation fund or cash out of them without any Australian tax implications. So whatever you're doing, make sure you start thinking about that because that six months sounds like a reasonable period, but it can be quite problematic sometimes in organising these things, especially if you've left the country and back in Australia. So start thinking about that a couple of months before your return if you can. One of the things that has happened in recent times, the, the ATO has been a bit mischievous in what it has defined pensions to be. And what we're seeing now is, is that they're releasing some rulings, not law, that are saying that if you can access your pension before retirement age of 60, 65, they may not consider it to be a valid pension. And if they do that, then there's different tax implications, including that it may be taxable on arrival. Now, it's a very big topic. Um, if you have any pensions overseas, please contact us, contact your advisor to check and see if you're impacted on this. And, uh, and see what issues there may be. You want to try and realise gains prior to the year of return, the tax year of return, if you can. If you've got any international trusts, you know, international accounts, international anything, they will all become visible. Now, you cannot hide things in the modern age. This little gadget called the computer that's you know, bringing you to, uh, me to your, your lounge room today, it's changed the world. The governments have far better you know, cross-matching technology than ever before, and they're using it. So do not feel that it's possible to hide money overseas. It will absolutely come back and bite you on the bum. Now, you've got to bear in mind in Australia, we do not only have tax rates that are quite high, but we have high penalties if for whatever reason you chose to not disclose and then later brought the money back and it got found. You might end up losing all of your profits in tax penalty and cost. So there's no advantage in trying to be smart and hide things. If you plan properly with everything globally, you'll find that it's easy to control things anyway. So don't worry about it. 
Now, if you decide to keep any overseas property and other assets such as shares, investments, etc., what does happen in Australia is there's a famous provision that says, okay, they will not tax you on profits prior to arrival, but they will tax you on profits after the date of arrival. Now, to bring that to account, you need to get a valuation undertaken. So what happens if you decide to keep a property in the US, in the Middle East, in Asia, you would get a local qualified valuer to go and give you a, a valuation of the property on the day you left the country. Now, it's important that it must be a licensed valuer, not just a property agent giving you an appraisal. That does not count. So you need to get a, a valuation. Now, that valuation is for tax purposes, so they can be sensible and generous in that valuation. You know, it needs to be as high as possible in the market that can be, because that's what will become your tax cost. Only profits over and above that valuation will need to be taxed in Australia. Now, once you've been back more than 12 months, half of those gains will also be subject to tax, uh, will also be free of tax, which is a benefit. So you don't want to sell anything really within 12 months. If you've got other assets, and basically it includes everything, even artwork, etc., they also need to be valued by an appropriate valuer, business assets, all these sorts of things. So make sure you get that done. If you had any shares, both in or out of Australia, they've been non-taxable in Australia if you are a non-resident for tax purposes, i.e. a full expatriate. So what happens is they will become taxable again on the day of return to Australia. Now, you do not need to sell your shares. A lot of people think that, oh, we best sell everything before we go back. That is not necessary at all. You're welcome to keep those shares. That's not going to hurt you in any way, shape or form. What happens is whatever the market value on the day of arrival is, that again becomes your cost base. It's as simple as checking on the stock exchange, what was the price on that day? Only profits if you sell above that price would be subject to tax and trade in the future. Anything um, made prior to arrival, not taxable. Now where that can sometimes be problematic is for example, if you have been going home during the middle of COVID when the stock market took a bit of a decline, if you had recently bought those shares and they're now worth less than you paid for them, then basically your tax cost is going to be the lower price. If you end up selling them for the same amount you paid for them, you haven't made any money actually, but the tax man will say that that's a profit because it's risen from the value on the day of return to your eventual sale. You didn't make any real profit, but it's taxable. So you need to be cautious about that, particularly in the current market where there's a lot of volatility. You'd ideally want to go back in a time when the stock market is nice and high and the share price is very, very strong. But you know, just make sure you, you don't panic, don't sell things. One of the things that I often say to people in regards to the question about should I sell is would you buy it at today's price? So if you wouldn't buy it, you've got to wonder why you'd keep it. And then the other thing is obviously, do you need the money for anything else? So we'll come back to that later. You definitely want to be making sure that you give a lot of thought to your Australian affairs, particularly if you're coming from a tax friendly country, you know, such as the Middle East or Asia, you know, where you haven't had to think about things for ages. Now, obviously, if you're living in a complicated jurisdiction like the US or UK, then you've probably been doing tax planning all the time because you know, their tax rates are equally as high as Australia. But you definitely need to be thinking that when you get back to Australia, you need to be planning everything you intend to do. It's very, very difficult to adjust things after the event in Australia. 
So anytime you intend to buy an asset, you know, invest money, do anything whatsoever, seek tax advice prior to the decision so that you know exactly what's best to do, what, what structure, all these things. You definitely want to consider using structures in Australia because it gives you flexibility and the opportunity to pay the least amount of tax legally. So you, know, you might look at things like companies or family trusts. They're very, very important in managing your affairs, particularly if you're on a salary and even more so if you're in a family environment where there's one dominant income earner and the other person may not be earning as much or anything. Now, if that's the case, then a structure is critical to ensure that we can divert income towards the person that has no salary and pay the lower tax rates on that, rather than give income to the person on the high salary that might be end up paying 47 cents in the dollar just because they happen to have it in their name. We also need to be very, very strong in considering debt management. Now, in Australia, we, have, we do have that high tax rate of 47 cents in the dollar. And what that means is, if you've got a cost that is not a tax deduction, such as interest on your family home, it becomes a very, very high burden. And we'll show that in a minute. But we want to definitely look at that strategy and how we minimize private debt and maximize investment debt. And I'll come to that in a minute. I just wanted to give you a quick glimpse of our lovely tax rates in Australia. These are the resident rates you know, currently in play. And you can see that the first $18,000 is tax-free. The next band moves towards a 19% band up to about 40,000. Then we're moving into 32 and a half from 42 to $90,000 currently. And then 37 and subsequently 45% for every income you know, that you earn over 180,000. Now, a lot of people think that you pay the 45% on all of it, but it's only on the amounts above the 180,000. Now, on top of those tax rates, you do have to pay a Medicare levy of 2%. So that has to be factored in so hence the effective top rate is 45 plus two, 47%. Now you'll see that we've got some tax reductions coming in July 22. They are actually already legislated. So they're not at risk, even with all this um, COVID cost and, and budget, budget blowouts here in Australia. And then we've got proposed rates from July 2024 that would see that top rate lift to 200,000, but the 30 cent bracket move into the whole 45 to 200,000. So this is a, a massive change in culture in Australia and something to look forward to. COVID has probably put this at some level of threat because the government is now bleeding money. So whether they can afford these tax cuts will be, you know, will be um, seen in the future. But I think they're committed to them and I think they see them as a stimulative effect. And hence, I think it's likely that they will probably continue on that path to bring those tax cuts to bear. Now, importantly, there's no rate of capital gains tax in Australia. A lot of people think that we have a rate. You know, we don't. What happens with capital gains is the taxable component sits on top of any other income and is taxed at normal tax rates. So whatever you make just sits on top of salary, interest, rental, any other income you have. But once you've owned an asset in Australia for more than 12 months, then half of any tax uh, uh, capital gains you make are tax-free. Now, if you're an expat returning, that 12 months starts on the day of return. So if you're arriving on the 1st of August, you don't want to sell any asset appreciation assets until at least the 1st or 2nd of August the following year. If you sold them within that 12 months, 
you would be taxed in full on the gain from the value on the day of arrival to the value on sale. If you waited just that extra few days or weeks or months and sold after 12 months, whatever that gain was, only half would be subject to tax. And this is a very important element in tax planning in Australia. If you can have a half you know, taxable amount, that's far better than fully taxable. And hence, we always encourage people to generate you know, wealth and revenue and cash flow from capital gains rather than pure income sources. Property also has some very good incentives. If you buy a new property or near new, you can get the entire building cost written off over 40 years. And that's a significant saving, particularly if you're looking at retirement strategies, that you can have a fair chunk of rent come in and a fair portion of it will actually be tax-free because it's offset by those depreciation. Now, the depreciation does get clawed back in the capital gains tax calculations, but if this is a long-hold asset, then that's not going to be of great consequence. And having that reduction in tax you know, on an annual basis is very, very valuable. We also have, I think, one of the best retirement tax environments in the world. And one of the reasons is superannuation Australia, once it moves into pension environment, is tax-free. Now, this does not include government pensions. Unfortunately, they still are taxable. But if you have a private pension that you've been contributing to over the years, it's tax-free. Now, one of the bad things about that, Australians are a little bit super-centric. They all think superannuation is the only thing to do, and it's not. It's one of the key elements, but it's not the dominant element. You know, there's restrictions in superannuation, so you have to be careful that if you put all your money in there, can you get it out? How old are you? All these sorts of issues. But it's certainly something that you want to have because it is tax-free, but not as a dominant as part of a long, you know, sensible and detailed strategy. And the other great thing we have is franking credits on Australian dividends. And that simply is a carry through of any tax paid by the corporation to the benefit of the individual. So in Australia, what we try and do is make sure that the individual is the ultimate taxpayer. So he pays tax on the full profit, gets a credit for the 30 cents of the dollar tax paid by the corporation. And if his tax rate is lower than 30 cents of the dollar, such as the 19 cent rate, then the government refunds you the difference. So that would give you 11 cents back out of the 30 cents paid by the, by the company. If your tax rate was 32 and a half, you would pay the extra only of two and a half cents. So it's a very fair system. It's very logical and it works a treat. We saw last year that you know, the, the Labor opposition tried to remove franking credits because they do come back as a tax refundable amount. And the Labor Party tried to take that out, and it was one of the key reasons they lost the election. So that's probably helped us to clearly state that this is a long-term permanent strategy that is available and sensible, and a good thing, particularly in retirement. So you want to be a combination of capital gains, property depreciation incentives, superannuation, and franking in your overall planning, because they're all tax advantage sources. If we have a look at the, the importance of being low private debt in Australia, you know, I've put this graph together to try and give you a clear understanding. Now, what a lot of people forget that when you pay for something, if it's not tax deductible, you have to earn more, pay the tax in order to pay the, the net amount to the recipient. So in this case, if you can imagine, if I'm paying 4% interest and my tax rate is the highest at 47, I'd have to earn another 3.5% effective you know, in order to have a gross income of 7.5%, lose 35 in tax, 
and have 4% left to pay the bank. So what that means is I'm effectively paying 7.5% cost on my loan on a salary earnings basis, where if it was tax deductible, the opposite applies. If I've got that interest cost of 4%, the tax department will give me a tax deduction because it's against some investment asset. So that'll give me effectively a 1.9% deduction, which brings my net after-tax cost down to just 2.1. And this is the critical element as to why you need to have low private debt, maximum investment debt. It's very, very critical that if you have some spare cash that you only direct it towards reducing loans that are for private purpose. Now, for instance, if you've got a home, whilst you're overseas, you're actually probably renting that out. So it's good to have the loan. But if you move back into that house, you want to reduce it at the time you move in because it stops collecting rental. Now, if you had two homes, one of them rented and one of them you're going to live in, you don't want to pay off both. You only want to pay off the one that you intend to live in. And that way you will always get the maximum benefit of this tax adjusted um, interest cost. So it's very, very critical that you're on a 2.1% cost that is 7.5. And it's one of the reasons also that we don't mind carrying debt into retirement if it is investment debt. You don't want to carry private debt ideally into retirement, but if it's investment debt, it's not a bad option. And particularly if you need that equity to help boost up your earnings. So we'll show you how that works. As a very, very quick rule of thumb, if you are heading back to Australia, this is the best way of assessing what to do with your money. So what you should be doing is, first of all, reducing that private debt. As I mentioned, much higher cost than investment debt, so reduce private debt first. Buy any of the things that you need, cars, boats, you know, furniture, whatever the case is. Do, do your refurb of your properties. You know, then keep an amount that you feel comfortable with as a slush fund. So whether that's 50, 100, $200,000, keep that out. Once you've got those three, then consider whether you want to put money into superannuation. A lot of advisors, I think incorrectly, go superannuation first. And that, that's a really bad option because the money is locked in and it's far worse to be high super and high debt than it is to be low debt on your private home and low superannuation balance. Believe you me, you can always make up the additional into your superannuation if you don't have the cash cost of a private mortgage on your home. So superannuation is fourth, not first on the list. Then you would consider if there's still money left to invest and then if you've still got some cash left over, you might want to help the kids. You know, some people get it in the wrong order and they become number one too, but I put them last. If you look after yourself, the kids will be fine. In terms of superannuation and structures, you know, superannuation is definitely something you want to have in your overall planning because it is that tax-free asset. You know, and there's little or nothing else that is tax-free in Australia. But in weighing up if you should and how much you should put up there, you want to consider, do you need the funds for anything else? Because once you put them in, there's no assurance you can get them back. At the moment, once you go into retirement, theoretically, you can get them back. But don't be surprised, the rules change regularly and it's going to get harder and harder and harder in the future for you to be able to have access. And so you definitely want to have less private debt and you know, less money in super than put all your money in super and still carry a large private debt. Now, if it was investment debt, I'd rather put money in the super than pay off investment debt because that is very cash flow effective and tax effective. 
And bear in mind, you can't always put all that you want to go in there. There are some caps. You can put in $100,000 a year as a non-deductible, but what you can do is block that into blocks of three. So you could make a three-year contribution in one hit of $300,000, but then you wouldn't be able to make another contribution in that nature for another three years. You can also put in a, a massive $25,000 a year tax deductible. Now, bear in mind your employer in Australia, if you get a job, will be paying about 10% of your salary into super. That includes this amount. So if you were on, for example, $150,000 salary, you would have 15,000 being contributed. If you wanted to increase your tax deduction, you would only be able to contribute an additional $10,000 to make a total of 25,000. So that's the maximum you can put in tax deductible each year. Now, if you are not needing cash flow, then definitely you want to be putting more in there because of the fact that it is going to be eventually a tax-free income in retirement. So definitely consider doing that if it suits your overall circumstances. And again, in the last couple of years, the government has come in and brought in a, 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 um, a balanced maximum for tax-free. So at the moment, if you've got 1.8 million or less in super, any pension you draw will be tax-free. If you're lucky enough to have more than 1.8 million in your superannuation fund, it won't be tax-free for the additional component. You know, so the government sort of said, hey, we think 1.8 is a nice level for someone to be tax-free. Above that, it's an, an over-incentive, so we're gonna not, not give any tax-free allowance on that. In regards to companies, they're very good and worth looking at because they do have a lower rate if you don't, again, need to extract the cash. The company rate is currently 30% for larger corporations and about 27.5% for smaller and scheduled to move down towards 25 cents for smaller companies. Now, what that means is that rather than pay tax on profits if you were your business at 47 cents on the dollar as an individual, you could leave them in the company and just pay tax at 25. Now, later on, you will have to draw it out at some stage and you will have to pay tax at your personal rates and pay the extra above that 25 or 30 cents. But if you've done that when you're now in retirement mode, there may not be any additional tax payable. So you get the advantage of deferring the tax payable to a more appropriate time. However, you, the other thing to bear in mind with companies is they do not get that 50% tax-free discount on capital gains tax. So generally speaking, we don't want companies to own assets that would appreciate rapidly. Now, they're better off in things like a family trust because a family trust can distribute a capital gain and get half tax free. Now, these, again, are very complicated areas. You need advice in determining whether you want to do that. But generally speaking, if you feel that you're going to have a large amount of investment or business income, a company is certainly worth having. And whether you would overlay it or interlay it with the trust, that would be worth considering. Superannuation, if you've got spare funds, definitely worth doing, but not at the expense of, you know, your own lifestyle, or particularly your, your large debt on a family home. To give you a very quick snapshot um, of how a position may look in Australia, um, we have a very detailed modelling that can do your circumstances very quickly and let you know exactly what you may or may not be up for and do a lot of what-if analysis. Now, again, everybody's circumstances are greatly different, but I'm just gonna look at a very simple example here of someone going back to Australia and retiring, owning their own home and having about $2 million to invest. Now, if you're lucky enough to be in that position, fantastic. 
If you've got a bit less, no dramas, the numbers will obviously change. If you've got lots more, no worries, the numbers will change. But you know, whatever your circumstances are, if you give us a call, we can do this modeling for you very quickly and easily. Now, if you look at the, the option of not doing much, just being a traditional person, putting $2 million in the bank. Now, if you're lucky, you might get one, one and a half percent interest. So you see, even with that large amount of money, earning one and a half percent, $30,000 a year, is probably not enough to survive. So even though you feel wealthy because you've got a large pool of capital over and above your home, it's just not able to generate any income because we're sadly in a very low interest world. Now, if all we did was start doing a little bit of tax planning and strategy, and we allocate the money into different areas, now we can take advantage of putting some into super, which would be able to generate a pension for us, you know, and we could earn money on that without too much hassle. And that pension is tax free. So if we put say 600,000 and we generate 5% return on that, that's $30,000 a year. And we could do that through shares and a few other options. That, that 30,000 a year would be cash income, but you can see it's not taxable income because the pension is tax free. If we bought a property with some of that money, that would generate probably about two and a half percent net rent, about 15,000. But if it was brand new, you would get the depreciation allowances of about nine grand. So even though we've generated 15,000 of cash flow, we've only got $6,000 of taxable income. And if we also bought some shares with some of that money, that'd be able to generate roughly about 5% in dividends, which a lot of companies in Australia pay, which is about 18,900 in cash flow, but it comes with an $8,100 tax credit. And that's that imputation credit I spoke of before. So what that means is you actually have to pay tax, not on the 18,900, you pay tax on the whole 27,000, but when they're working out the tax, they'll take 8,100 off as already paid. And I'll show you that in a second. If we've got use, um, we have some syndicates that we offer our clients that pay a 12% interest, and that's gonna certainly be more attractive than the bank. And you see, if we put 350 in there, that would generate 42,000. And then left a little bit of a slush fund of about 70,000 available for bits and pieces. So that's still only giving us a small amount of one and a half. But you can see the combination of allocating things into more tax advantaged and higher revenue stream environments means we've now got a cash flow of that 2 million of $106,000, much more than 30,000. Now the taxable portion of that 106 is only $76,000. And the tax on that, if you're a couple, is about $9,000 in Australia. But before we pay that $9,000 tax, we get a credit for the tax paid on the dividends. So you can see on that $106,000 of cash flow in retirement, we're only paying tax of $1,200, effectively a tax rate of just 1%. So all of a sudden we've generated with the same amount of money, instead of $30,000, we've generated $106,000 of after-tax cash flow. Now, I can tell you that it costs approximately $50,000 to exist in Australia. You know, that's the cost of just turning the lights on, putting food on the table, three meals a day, driving around a little bit, and just a little bit of normality. So you need to generate $50,000, okay? And then plus your house, plus this, plus that. Luckily, in this case, we own our home, so we don't have a mortgage to pay. But you can see at least we've got $100,000 that 50 grand goes for existence, 50 grand goes for enjoyment, whether that be for your children, for a holiday, 
you know, for anything else, for one of your hobbies, whatever it is, but you're giving yourself the best chance. And all we've done is a little bit of sensible allocation into a broad range of things, but are all tax advantaged and tax friendly. Okay, super, property, shares, you know, and some interest. Okay, and we're using them all to help us to make a reasonable income in retirement without any hassle. Now, on top of that 105,000, because we have bought things like shares and property, they have the potential to also rise in value. So you see, if that happened, there'd be an additional amount potentially of about $48,000 increase in value each and every year. Now, the shares we could buy and sell at will. The property obviously is harder to do. We'd have to sell it in full. But at least my wealth is appreciating on top of that 105. You know, and what that means is if I do cash in some of those shares or sell the property, the other great thing there is that that capital gain of 48,000 is not fully taxable. As you might recall, half of that is tax free. So if we do end up having to bear tax on that gain when we realize it, we only have to pay tax on $24,000, not the whole 48. So that's going to help out if we ever needed to sell something to replace the car, help the kids, you know, fund a holiday, whatever the choice was, having that boosting income to the side, you know, is very, very important to supplement and enhance our lifestyle. So again, that's a $2 million example. Your circumstances would be different, depending if you're keeping offshore assets, et cetera. But again, we've got a very, very good modeling system that we can work through and let you know exactly what you can look forward to when you're going home and what would happen if you did this or did that, kept your overseas property, sold your overseas property, paid off the loan, didn't pay off the loan, et cetera. So if you need help, reach out and we'd be love to help you. Finishing off, what are the secrets of a successful repatriation back to Australia? Well, you know, the first one is awareness. So hopefully we've given you some really good information and ideas in this session, but you know, you want to just consider some of the key elements like when are you going back? Where are you going to live? And how much do you need to live? And where is it going to come from? If you can consider those things, then it's going to be a lot easier. Now, hopefully timing is a longer term thing for you, but it might be immediate. But the sooner you start planning for everything, the better off you are. You obviously want to know the real facts and we've tried to give those to you today. You know, again, I've been doing this for 25 years and the amount of rumors and misinformation I hear is incredible. If you want to get the answers, go to someone who actually knows what they're about. You know, again, registered tax agent, you know, qualified accountant, come to us. You know, we'll be able to give you answers. You know, we're always willing to answer questions, you know, without cost. So don't be afraid that we're going to send you a bill. We'll be happy to answer any emails you've got. And make sure you've got a broad strategy. Again, one of the big mistakes many people have is that single strategy, such as superannuation, such as, oh, I'm going to buy houses. You need to have a mix of everything in Australia because it is a challenging environment, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's a bad one. And you'd need to look as far forward as humanly possible. You know, ideally you start planning for your return the day you leave, you know, and if you can do that, you're far better off. Many years ago, I wrote the book called the Aussie expat, the luckiest person on earth. If you are still in the early stages of your expatriate life, I'd strongly recommend you have, have that. It's a great, you know, um, guide for you whilst you're overseas and then get onto this planning and come and check with us on a regular basis with our modeling. We just update it and then you'll know exactly what you're going forward to. 
you know, those tax incentive zones, I can't stress enough the importance of them. And again, you know, superannuation, definitely, you know, property and shares are all tax advantage when back in Australia and should be part of your strategy in, in all of them. And of course, the most important thing is to make sure you're very honest about your situation. You know, like I say, don't try and hide assets overseas. It isn't going to work. Don't try and pretend that you'll save more than you will. Don't you know, try and pretend that everything will be rosy. You've got to plan for some bad situations. If we've learned nothing through things like COVID is that sometimes the sun doesn't shine. So you've got to look at what is your emergency plan? How do you realize things? You know, make sure that you've got your home as a primary there. Buy that as early as you can if, you, if, if possible. And finishing off, you know, um, obviously it's complicated repatriation. It's detailed, but we're here to help you. Again, we've got a very, very cool uh, tax modeling tool that we can you know, give you very, very clear vision and answers to all of your issues and help you get back to Australia with full knowledge, full preparation, and in the best financial shape possible. Um, on that note, I'm gonna hand back to, to Julie for any questions, and I'm gonna wish you all a very happy return to Australia when and if that ever happens for you. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, apologies again this morning for some technical issues. Uh, we have been sent a load of questions, so we'll try and get through as many as we can. Um, but what we will do is send everybody a copy of the webinar and a copy of all the questions um, that were sent through time. So first question, Steve. Um, if you own a property in Australia that's been used as your personal place of residence before expatriating and have returned and now live in it, when can you sell it without having to pay capital gains tax? Yeah, it, it depends on, on the circumstances. It, it, to pay no capital gains tax, you need to be back in Australia and sell it within six years of originally moving out. Um, if you can do that, then there is no capital gains tax. If it's more than six years since you lived in it, then you will have a situation where it'll be taxable no matter what, but on a pro rata basis. So usually what happens is the period you lived in it is tax-free. You need to get evaluation as to what it was worth when you moved out. The, the next six years pro rata would be tax free. But you know, um, the period above six years, you know, if you, for instance, rented it for eight years in total, then two out of those six years is always going to be subject to tax. And then it will depend how much tax as to how long you've lived in it again. And if you were back in Australia, et cetera. Now, one of the things that did happen that is a problem for a lot of expats is the government changed the law to say that if you sold that property while you were living overseas, you would not get any capital gains tax free. And that is now law. So what you want to do is if you did live in a property in Australia, please do not sell it unless you are back in Australia living there as a resident once again. If you sell whilst overseas, you might find that you're taxed in full for all profits right back to original acquisition. So you've got to be very, very careful in doing so. Thank you. Our next question, do you immediately become a tax resident when you land in Australia? Uh, the answer is theoretically yes. It's not so much when you land in Australia, it's when you land in Australia with the intention to permanently live there. So basically, if at the moment, for instance, there's lots of COVID refugees, including myself. You know, I, I was back in Australia when COVID came. I've been stuck here since March, right? My tax residency has not changed because my intention to live in Australia has not changed. I did not intend to live here. I'm wanting to go home. It's just not safe. But if you have arrived in Australia with the intention of living for the rest of your life or for a period of two or more years, 
then you are now a tax resident. A lot of people think that they can choose the date. You can't. You are physically the date, the day your intention changes. So once you just decide that you want to live in Australia permanently, then you are a tax resident. Thank you. Um, next question. My family is going to return to Australia whilst my husband remains working in Singapore. Will this mean that he becomes a tax resident when we return or after he repatriates back? Generally speaking, it's when he returns to Australia that he will become a tax resident. And the reason for that is that the Australian tax system is not family-based, it is individual-based. So each one is judged on the merit. Now, this is getting to be a more and more common situation where one, one spouse returns and the other spouse stays over. What the ATO will do is obviously put you under the, the microscope a lot more than, than a normal situation. And, and the critical thing is to make sure that it is very clear that the remaining spouse in the overseas country has not changed their life much, that they are still connected to that country, genuinely living in that country, and nothing has pretty much changed except that the family went home. If it's seen that you followed your family and you are now flying in and out of Singapore in this case, then that residency could indeed change. So if you've shipped all of your belongings back with your family and you're now just in a hotel, there is a risk that you may become a tax resident. So you, again, you, you have to look at your personal circumstances. What the tax office is looking for is disconnection with the previous country and also ensuring that you're still genuinely living there and haven't just fly in, fly out for convenience of work. Um, we've been living in our family home in Singapore for the last 10 years. We do not have a home in Australia. If we sell our Singapore home after returning to Australia, will we have to pay capital gains? Uh, theoretically, yes, capital gains tax is payable. Now, two things happen. Number one, you've got the, the valuation that you need to get. So you want to get a valuation. Any profit up to that valuation on day of return, not taxable. The other advantage you've got is the six-year rule. So once you go down to Australia, if you don't buy another property and you can sell your single property within six years of arrival, it would still be fully tax-free under the principal residence you know, temporary cessation rules. Where it gets a little bit complicated is if sometime in that six years you find a property in Australia and you buy it and it becomes your residence, you can only have one residence at a time. So what happens is you would have to choose at some stage which one you wanted to apply as your residence, and then that six years may stop. So the likelihood is that at some stage in the future, it will be subject to capital gains tax. It may be that you're lucky enough that there is no capital gains tax under the principal residence rules, but it will depend on your circumstances in Australia and the timing, but we'll happily guide you through that. When is the optimal time to transfer money to Australia if we're planning on repatriating back? When the exchange rate is good. <laughs> it, it literally doesn't matter from a tax perspective it's it's obviously if you can get a decent exchange rate then go for it the other time to do it is when you've got a purpose so for instance if if you see a property that you love and you want to live in it you know buy that don't wait for a good exchange rate to buy something that's a good asset at a good price so you know sending money for the sake of sending is not always good these days because interest rates are so low but if you've got a purpose for that money, i.e. to invest it, buy a home, or get a good exchange rate, that's always a good time to send money home. Thank you. Can you be a non-resident of Australia for tax purposes while still living in Australia? 
Sorry, I just repeat can, that for me. Can, can you be a non-resident of Australia for tax purposes while still living in Australia? The answer is yes. Uh, as long as you are not intending to live in Australia on a permanent basis, you are not a resident. Now, one of the things that look for that is do you have a residence somewhere else? Now, they'll look at two things. One, do you have a home? And do you have an appropriate visa to be in that place? So it's very hard, for instance, to argue um, you know, that you're not resident of Australia if you don't have permission to be a resident anywhere else and indeed if you don't have a home anywhere else. So if you want to be in Australia for a prolonged period of time, such as with COVID, for example, then you need to make sure you maintain your visa and maintain your home. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you change those circumstances, then that's going to change the way that you're assessed. Um, if you've given your visa up, for instance, in Dubai or Singapore, then you can't go back. So you can't say that you're a resident of a place that you don't have permission to live. Thank you. Um, I'm looking to return to Australia in the not too distant future. When is the right time to purchase a home? Is it before I depart? Should I purchase it in my own name? And will it be my primary place of residence if nobody's living there? Yeah, you, you definitely want to buy it as early as possible, but that, that's luck as much as anything else. If you're fortunate enough to, to find it and buy it, go for it. It's difficult to get finance as an expatriate. You know, you also want to make sure that you're having a situation where, um, you know, you, you want to know if it's going to be rented or not. Now, if you didn't buy it whilst in Australia, it will not be capital gains tax free under the six year rule. So, you know, you need to have bought it prior to departure. Now, if, if that happened to work out, great, but you can't exactly de delay your departure for a good job until you've done that. Now, if you're overseas, don't worry that you've bought it whilst overseas and don't worry that it might be taxable in the future anyways, because it will only be on a pro rata basis. The period rented over the period total ownership will be taxable no matter what you do. One of the common myths we hear from people is that if I go home and live in the house for six months, it becomes tax free. That is not true. If you've rented the property out for five years and you go back to Australia and you live in it for six months, five months, it's fully taxable and it would be pro rata. So five years and you know, it would be taxable out of five years and five months. The longer you live in it, the less will become taxable. So for example, if you go and own it for five years rented while overseas, move in for 10 years and sell it, then 10 15ths would be tax free, but 5 15ths stays taxable. So you've got to just, you know, obviously buy it as early as you can, live in it for as long as possible. But to me, the big advantage of buying your home is the fact that you're getting it at today's price with what you want while you can afford it. And particularly while you've got a, a tenant helping you out with the rent, while particularly now with interest rates being so fantastically low, if you've got cash flow, you know you're going to go back one day if you know where you want to live and you can find a property at a price that you like, grab it. Fantastic. Another question here, if 401k is taken out early, is that considered to be a pension? Um, is it considered to be received when you deposit the cheque or when the cheque is cleared? Yeah, the, the tax office doesn't consider it to be a pension. So, you know, um, what would happen is you'd, you'd be potentially taxed on that for all gains realized in any financial year that you are a resident during that financial year. So if possible, you want to try and exit your 401k before you return to Australia between a July and June period. That's not always practical or possible. 
what will happen is that the tax office will potentially tax you on all gains that had not been prior realized. So if you've had unit trusts that were appreciating in value, they're subject to, to tax under the current interpretations. But um, again, it's quite complicated. You know, if you are you know, doing it, seek advice prior to cashing it. So at least you go in with eyes wide open and you don't get any nasty surprises. Can you transfer stocks and funds to an Australian brokerage from a US brokerage? Uh, generally speaking, yes. When you get down to Australia, you'll just go on and you'll set up the, the uh, an appropriate share brokerage, either through a, a stock broker or even with an online trading facility. As long as that, that facility allows those foreign exchange bourses, you know, if you've got, say, shares on the New York Stock Exchange, um, as long as the person in Australia allows trading on those, you'll be able to you know, transfer them across. There's no tax implications for that because there's no change in ownership. It's just change in the, the registra, you know, registration. So you can do that without any hassle. But bear in mind, you don't need to do that unless the broker doesn't want you as a client anymore. You could leave them in that offshore you know, account, but you would have to declare them in Australia. You can't pretend that you forgot about them. Is it worth switching an interest-only mortgage on an investment property to a principal and interest mortgage once I move back to Australia? Yeah, in the old days, I would have absolutely said no. And the reason was in the old days, the interest rate for interest only was the same as the interest rate for principal and interest. Uh, now, these days, the banks actually give you a higher cost if your loan is interest only. So definitely when you go back, in order to save money, you might want to shift to principal and interest, okay? Uh, because it'll be a lower interest cost. And the lower the interest cost, the better. Now, having said that, you still need to bear in mind the cash flow impact because paying off that debt is going to have a cash flow burden. So, can you afford that? You know, and uh, if you can, then no problems. But the other thing to consider is have you, you know, paid out all of your other private debt first? So, if you came down to, you know, you had your home loan and the investment loan, you don't want to be reducing the investment loan. I'd be doubly reducing the home loan. So again, it will be based on your circumstances. If you are debt free on your private home, then certainly if you can afford it, it's worth considering. If not, I'd pay the higher cost personally to be interest only and accelerate my principal reduction on my other private loans. Thank you. Is it possible to be a tax resident of Australia and another country such as the US in the same tax year? It definitely is. Um, you know, if you imagine all countries have different rules as to what residents are, you know, whether it's 183 days, permanent location, etc. Um, most um, countries these days have double tax agreements with Australia that, that deals with if this is the circumstance. And usually if that's the case, and again, you have to take advice. I, I can't give it to you as a, as a carte blanche answer, but usually if there's a double tax agreement, yeah, the country that this was the source of the income is the one that has the right to tax and Australia wouldn't tax you on that. Um, but again, you've got to check on that because if you're living in Australia working for an offshore company, that is still going to be taxable in Australia. And what would happen is normally you'd get a tax credit for the foreign tax pay. So you just have to check. There's, there's many, many permutations of that. Thank you. Um, last question. Um, have I, I've been offered a three to four month uh, remote work from my UK employer while I'm in Australia. What are the tax implications of this? 
well, if you are just providing the services that you would normally be doing in the UK and they're not Australian you know, sourced income, then it's likely that you wouldn't be subject to tax in Australia if you were still a non-resident. So for non-residents, you know, so someone that is just in Australia for a temporary basis and has not changed their tax residency, you're only taxed on Australian sourced income. So theoretically, if you were just, um, like I say, COVID refugee, and you're still just doing your, your UK salary position, you know, but you're doing it remotely because you're stuck in Australia, you know, then that is unlikely to be taxed in Australia unless you were doing it for the Australian subsidiary and they put you on the payroll there. So you've just got to be careful in regards to where you generate the income and the circumstances haven't changed. But um, you know, generally speaking, you should be okay as long as your residency has not changed with it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Steve. And thank you for everyone joining us uh, this morning. Uh, thanks again to our co-host, Aussie Expats, coming home. Thank you so much, Steve. That was another really informative webinar. And thanks for everybody for your questions. So we've got quite a few sent through. Um, we'll start with the first one. So um, this person asked um, some questions relating to moving back to Australia from the UK. Um, there's three questions here. What are the options for UK SIPP personal pension when moving back to Australia? Yeah, it's getting harder and harder with, with SIP. So that's, you know, a, um, a self-invested pension plan. But what, what happens is you, you've got issues these days in regards to the restrictions of how much you can transfer. So if it's over the 300,000 transfer limit, you've got all sorts of problems. There are some things we can do. What does happen is Australia can, can um, assume the tax responsibility with the UK. So what we can do is get a tax ruling for you that if you want to keep the SIP, that we can get it at a zero tax rate in the UK and that you'll be taxed in Australia, which happens to be zero as well. So you don't have to get it down. We have ways that you can transfer it to Australia, but it is quite complicated. It can be quite expensive, um, but you, you just want to see it and the, the benefit of keeping it and how much it is and whether or not you can cash out or not cash out, etc. There's obviously UK tax issues as well. So that's the problem. And, and the UK taxes pensions, you know, regardless of how long you're retired, um, where Australia doesn't. So in a perfect world, you want to be shifting your things down to Australia if possible. It's just not as easy as it used to be. What happens to investments held in a UK ISA account when moving back to Australia? Well, again, you know, they will be treated as, an, as, a, as a trust investment. So what happens is when they're cashed out, you know, they will be subject to tax in Australia. They will likely be taxed only on the profits since arrival. And then you'll get a credit if you've paid tax in the UK against that in a normal circumstance. And last question in this series. Um, I own a UK flat that I live in. When moving to Australia, should I aim to sell the UK flat before I leave the UK or once I've settled in Australia? It doesn't really matter when you sell it. And the reason being is that it's taxable only on the, the profits above the valuation on date of return. So if you sell it before or, or soon or later, it doesn't really matter because it's what the valuation is that's taxable, not, not any other consequence. So if you obviously sell it within a couple of months of going back, it's likely that that sale price is very close or the same as that valuation. Obviously, the longer the time between arrival and sale, that valuation may start to widen. Um, what you've got is if you've been living in that property, it is potentially tax-free for up to six years under the principal residence rules. 
But that will depend if you get another residence in Australia and you'd have to weigh things up. But uh, I wouldn't be in a rush to sell, you know, but certainly you would want to assess it. One of the things I often say to people is not would you sell the property, but would you buy the property if you hadn't already owned it? Because that's one of the ways that you can work out whether you think that it's worth keeping. And bear in mind, you might as well have a property in London as, as Sydney. It doesn't make any difference if it's a good investment and, it, and you've got faith in its capacity to grow. The only other reason to sell it would be if you needed the money, particularly if you wanted to reduce your private home in Australia, but you'd weigh all these factors up and make a good decision. In regards to Hong Kong MPF, how do you transfer money withdrawn from your MPF account without incurring penalties? And would it be best to put it into a superannuation fund or into bricks and mortar? Yeah, I don't think you can get the money out of MPF without the penalties. Um, you know, once it's out of the MPF, then you obviously can just transfer it down through any FX service, including our own. Um, in terms of whether you put it into an Australian uh, pension fund, that would just depend again on need of money. If you, if you need that money to reduce a mortgage, reduce the mortgage. If it's spare and left over, then consider whether you want to keep it as cash or put it in the superannuation. You're not compelled to roll it over into another superannuation fund. Um, but one of the things with the MPF is that's one of the funds that the ATO is being mischief on. So what they're saying with MPF and also CPF in Singapore and you know, Provident funds with um, you know, Cathay Pilots and Emirates, they're saying that because you can access it prior to retirement age, they don't treat it as a retirement you know, fund. So what they're doing now is they're taxing it and on, uh, as a trust, which means that potentially some of your past profits could be subject to tax. So again, that's one of the things that if you are looking to cash out of MPF, talk to us. We don't agree with the way the tax office is handling that matter, but you know, we need to explain to you what your options are, but just make sure you get good advice prior to acting. I worked in Hong Kong for a year and I intend to stay for at least another two more years. I did not file myself as a non-resident for tax purposes before leaving Australia. Will I still be liable for tax? And is there a way to correct this? Yeah, there's no form you need to lodge to say that you are non-resident. What happens is in the tax year that you leave, you know, when you're filling in your return, there's a little box that says, did you change your residency during the year? Now you meant to tick that, that okay, on the 3rd of March, I'm now living in Hong Kong. If you fail to do that, you could amend that and you could go and adjust it. But if you did not think that you had changed your residency, i.e. you weren't sure you were going to be permanently in Hong Kong, then you, you are potentially taxed on that income. But you know, there are double tax agreements, there are other things, but usually if you intend to be overseas for more than two years, you would not be subject to tax in Australia. And it may be that you need to amend that tax return or you might just have not filled in the form yet and we could help you with that. Thank you. As a non-resident expat for 20 years, will there be any tax such as capital gains if overseas assets are sold and the funds are transferred to Australia before arrival? If you transfer everything or sell everything prior to and transfer prior to, then they're not on the Australian tax radar whatsoever. But again, don't feel compelled that you have to do that because they're deemed to be a quite at market value. So, you know, if you had kept them and sold them later, you wouldn't have paid tax on that value anyway. So again, sell it because it's the right thing to do financially or necessity. Don't sell it because of fear of tax. That's a really bad reason. It's not gonna be taxable 
because they only tax you on profits after arrival. So if you've made lots and lots of money on those shares before that, you don't need to sell to make them tax free. They automatically will be tax free for you. Thank you. <coughs> provide some clarity as an expat planning on returning to Australia, who is currently a non-resident for tax purposes. What are the tax liability once personal residency conditions change over? So what was the first part of the question? <laughs> Can you pr provide some clarity for an expat returning back to Australia, who is currently a non-resident? And what is, what's the liability once the personal residency conditions change over? Well, that was the whole first slide we did. So if you check the video, we'll do that. So rather than go through there, but basically everything prior to arrival isn't going to be subject to tax as a general rule. Only profits, salaries, income from arrival onwards will be subject to tax. So you don't have too much to worry about, but you might have missed the start of it. So go back there or give us a call and we'll help you out. Thank you. Um, regarding the taxable from date change, is this a nominal date or is it the actual arrival date? Uh, it, it's basically the date where your intention to reside changed. So usually speaking, if you have obviously, you know, cancelled your apartment, cancelled the lease, packed your belongings, put them in a container, shipped them to Australia and you've arrived at the same time, then that is very clear that you intend to live in Australia permanently. So day of arrival would be the key date. However, if you had you know, gone down on holiday and you were just you know, were intending to go back overseas and all of a sudden the circumstances changed and you changed your mind, the day of residency change would be the day you changed your mind, not the day of arrival. So they look at when did you intend to you know, change that residency Usually it is the day of arrival, but in some cases it might be a different date. Okay, this is a pretty specific question. Uh, my partner is a UK citizen working in Switzerland, but he's right now in Australia. He's applied for PR visa in Australia. Will the Australian tax rules apply to him? And does it matter where his money's coming from? Or um, if he's moving pension funds to Australia as a retiree? Yeah, the, the tax um, won't apply to him if he's not living in Australia. So the fact that he gets his permanent residency visa does not make him a tax resident for Australia. It gives him the right to enter and live in Australia and work in Australia and be entitled to any other benefits. It doesn't make him taxable. What would happen is he would be subject to tax on the day he relocates himself to live permanently in Australia. That's when the residency would change. Now, at that time is when you'd weigh things up. Now, things like the, the Swiss pension, et cetera, may well be taxable in Australia. You know, you just assess whether or not there's a double tax agreement. You'd assess all the various elements. So we would just check that for him, depending where it's coming from and, you know, and uh, whether it qualifies. Most likely it will be taxable, you know, but it would just be part of the planning strategy. We'd look at that, punch it in, and make sure that you know, we minimize any other tax implications. Can you become a tax resident uh, during the tax year um, if it's less than six months? Uh, in, are the thresholds prorated or are you deemed a non-resident because it's less than six months? Yeah, if you do come back during the year, the, the, uh, the threshold is prorata, but it's a strange situation where the old threshold used to be about $6,000. So what they do is they actually only prorata the $6,000, the other 12 you get tax free. 
So theoretically, if you went back on the 1st of January, instead of getting $18,000 tax-free, you'd get, you'd, you'd get 15. Okay, so it's a bit weird. I'm not sure how it ended up like that. In the old days, it used to just be pro rata, six became three, but for some reason, they've, they've got it quite weird and it works out a bit in your favor. But that's a good thing if you are a taxpayer. Can you please confirm if you have to pay capital gains on Australian shares when abroad as a non-resident? You absolutely categorically don't. You know, so if you are a non-resident, then you know, shares in Australia or anywhere else for that matter are tax-free. Dividends are tax-free. So you can buy and sell, no tax. If you receive a dividend, as long as it's what's called fully franked, which basically means that 30 cent tax credit has been paid by the company, then there's no further tax implications. If they didn't pay it, there's a small withholding tax of 10 or 15%. Do you have any tips for tax planning for those without $2 million cash in the bank who are at retirement age? Yeah, give us a call. You know, we'll, we'll, see we'll help you out. Look, it, you don't need $2 million. I mean, it's just, it's always difficult with examples as to what number you pick. You know, you could do it less. And don't forget, if you don't have that $2 million, if you've got less than 500,000, for example, you know, then the Australian pension will still apply to you. So the assets test and the income test, you know, um, you know basically you can have assets up to six, $700,000 plus your home and still get the Australian pension. So there's all different options you've got there. Um, just give us a call and we just work out a strategy as to what we can do. But the great thing is if you don't have a lot of savings, as long as you've hopefully got your home as much paid off as possible, you'd get the pension, you'd live happily ever after in Australia, no worries. But don't worry if you haven't got lots of money, you know, not everybody does, you know, but it certainly brings into perspective that, you know, can you boost your savings in the little while you've got left if possible. But you know, we don't mind if you've got, you know, $20 or 20 million, it's irrelevant. Come and talk to us, we'll get the best result for you. Are there any implications or stamp duty payable if you move assets to your spouse? Uh, depending on which state, each state has different rules. Uh, generally, as a rule of thumb, if you transfer half of your property from your name to your spouse, there is no um, stamp duty payable in pretty much every state in Australia. I think Victoria allows you to transfer the whole property without any you know, stamp duty, um, but only to your spouse, not to anybody else. So. As a general rule of thumb, I'd say to you, yes, but check with your settlement agent, check with your lawyer to be absolutely spot on. You don't want to get that wrong because it's 6%. Now, the other thing to bear in mind, the transfer to your spouse can also potentially trigger capital gains tax. Now, generally speaking, if you transfer a half ownership to your spouse and you were previously the full owner, there is capital gains tax rollover, that that would not trigger capital gains tax. But if you give them the whole property, it would be a taxable event, unless it was a part of a divorce or something. So we've been absolutely inundated with questions tonight. Um, what we will do is we will answer all of them and we will follow up um, by sending you a copy of the webinar tonight um, and all the questions that we have um, been sent. So thank you to everybody that sent them through. Um, and we had uh, a couple of people mention Steve's book. Um, it's called The Aussie Expat, The Luckiest Person on Earth. We'll also send you a link to download a free copy of that um, for those of you that are interested. So thank you again. Um, we'll sign off now. Um, have a lovely evening. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Julie.
Thank you for listening to this Snatch Group podcast. If you would like more information, feel free to get in touch with us at www.smats.net. That's www.smats.net. Or come find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter.